Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Sherry Mason. Uh, she likes to be called Sam, it looks like. Uh, she had a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, then she went on to get her doctorate in chemistry at University of Montana as a NASA Earth Sci- System Science Scholar. She's also a professor of chemistry at SUNY Fredonia, and we're going to talk about her research on plastic pollution. So, Sam, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Richard, we have to make a, a, a change to that bio. Sure, no problem. <laughs> Sorry, I'm no longer at SUNY Fredonia. I was a chemistry professor there, but um, I'm the, the director of sustainability at Penn State Erie, the Barron College. Okay, excellent. No problem. Thanks for correcting me. Um, tell me about your, your current research. What are you working on? Uh, currently, we are looking at uh, two rivers that run through the city of Erie, and they have on them what are called litter booms. So these are, are devices that, that string across the river, and as trash floats down the river, it, they, that trash gets pushed into a cement containment unit. And we go out there a couple of times a week, fish out all of that trash, bring it back to the lab, dry it, weigh it, count it, categorize it, and brand it. We are doing this in collaboration with a a colleague who is looking at trash within storm drains. And then our next uh, kind of piece of the project that'll start this summer is looking at trash within street sweepers. Um, The overall idea of the project is, is to kind of get a better idea of how things are moving from the land into the water. How much trash gets picked up in a typical day or week? And what kind of trash? Oh, that's a good question. In terms of weights, I mean, it's within a couple of days, we're, we probably pick up uh, 20 to 30 pounds of, of trash within these litter booms. What are we finding? It's It's a lot of plastic bottles, actually, more even than I expected. I live in the state of Pennsylvania, and we do not have a bottle bill here. So I think that if we were to be looking in the rivers in, say, New York or Michigan, where they have bottle bills, there's probably less plastic bottles. But that's probably the number one thing that we're finding. And then, well, cigarette butts, of course, um, and cigar tips, just a lot of food wrappers. It's basically plastic that's associated with kind of single-use consumable items that you might buy at a convenience store. So it's a lot of food wrappers. Dog poop bags is a is a very common thing as well. Talking with our, our public works people, there seems to be a portion of the population that thinks that those dog poop bags are, are biodegradable. And so therefore they throw, people just throw them down the storm drains, but they are not. <laughs> so we find them. Well, I was going to yeah. ask you how, how debris gets into Lake Erie. I just imagine people throwing it in there when they're along the shoreline. But, but what are the sources that, uh, that feed Lake Erie? Yeah, so I think, I mean, from the studies that have been done, 
so far, it seems like littering is about half intentional and half unintentional. So you definitely have those people who will throw things down storm drains or just throw um, things out their car windows at the, as they're driving. Um, that accounts for about half of it. The other half, though, is, is a lot of unintentional stuff. You know, putting out garbage at night in bags and then a you know raccoon or skunk comes and digs that bag open because they smell something good and then all of a sudden your trash is you know blown down the entire street or you know as you mentioned like you know going to the beach and and the gray lakes have lots of beautiful beaches um and bringing stuff with you and and accidentally leaving it behind so that happens as well Um, I think a lot of what we find on beaches is that kind of stuff. I think a lot of what we find within the Great Lakes um, comes from litter, whether it's intentional or unintentional. The litter booms you have, were they meant to sample garbage or were they meant to clean the lake? And do they help clean the lake a lot? Um, so they were installed basically to, as a preventative measure by the by the city back in like the 1980s. So they were really just intended to to help prevent litter from making its way out into Presque Isle Bay, which is connected to Lake Erie. And they do that, you know, pretty well. When I learned that we had these here within the city of Erie, I, to me, it was just a kind of a, a, a nice place then to do some, some studies and then expanding beyond just those to kind of, again, like I said, try and understand how things are making their way from land to the lakes and what's happening along the way. So getting a better idea of that kind of breakdown as big plastic was, items. Uh, yeah. You could say it was an eerie coincidence that you were able to use them to sample the trash. <laughs> that was clever, Richard. Yes. Very eerie. Well, only you could say that too. Which is good. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, well, so cool. yes, um, that's what they're, they're intended for. It was, it was a preventative measure. And so not all locations have those. Well, I mean, just out of curiosity, though, how effective are the litter booms at keeping stuff out of the bay and keeping the lake uh, in better shape? Um, I think that they are effective. It's, you know, they're just expensive to install and then you have to maintain them, right? So when we're not out there collecting the trash, the city of Erie is paying people to go out and, and scoop it out and take it to a landfill. So it's not a real solution. It's a preventative measure, and I appreciate it, but the real solution um, happens much further upstream than that. Um, And like I said, there's a lot of places that don't have these installed, a lot of rivers even here in Pennsylvania that don't have them. I mean, those are our two main tributaries that run through the city, but we have about 15. (laughs) So, you know, there's still a lot of trash that's making its way out via these, these waterways that don't have these kind of strategies implemented. So it really kind of um, harkens to us kind of um, as people and our society to kind of rethink our relationship with this material. And part of it is is how we purchase things. Part of it is how we um, dispose of things. But a big part of it also happens upstream from um, us as consumers and it's it's the industries themselves, um, how they the, the materials that they're choosing to package their products with and, and how that system is put into place. So there's, there's a lot that has to happen both on a legislative, uh, a commercial industrial side, as well as a consumer side. And you mentioned bottle bills. What are they? Is that where you recycle the bottle and get five cents? And, you know, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. So when you go to 
buy a product that comes in a bottle, you actually pay a deposit. So you pay, it's usually five cents, sometimes it's 10 cents per bottle. Um, and this applies in many places that bottle bills exist. It's not only plastic bottles, but glass bottles. So say I'm buying a six pack, then I'm going to be paying an extra 30 or 60 cents on top of the normal cost of that six pack. And then when I return those bottles, I get that money back. And it provides a financial incentive so that even if I don't recycle them, that you will have other people that will come through your garbage and grab those bottles out and, and use it to make some, some money. And I've, I've seen this um, having lived in New York before Pennsylvania, you would see people coming and scourging through, you know, other people's garbage looking for, for bottles that they could return to get some money back. Um, and they are incredibly effective at reducing those items being found as litter. So you, in areas that have bottle bills, you don't see plastic bottles and glass bottles as litter because they have economic value. Um, and so you, you see much higher recycling rates in areas that have bottle bills than in areas that don't on the order of, you know, 80 to 90%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So what does it tell you about the variation and what you find in the garbage in these, uh, these booms? Um, well, you know, we're kind of early in the stages, so we haven't, um, I was just talking with my collaborator, you know, we haven't had a chance to, to really kind of compare what he finds in the storm drains to what I'm finding in the litter booms and to really think about our data. This is, this is how science works. You know, you're spending um, the, the first part of the process, you, you're just acquiring the data. And then there's the data analytical piece. And we just kind of haven't gotten to that point yet to really kind of fully delve in and understand more about that. And then we have another colleague who's doing this out in Michigan, a similar kind of study. And so then we also need to go and, and kind of look at not only what we're finding here, but how what we're finding here compares to what we're, they're finding there. So Data analytics will probably happen next year. So I'm not sure now I don't have a, a really good full-fledged answer for you as to what it's telling us as of yet. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, as I asked you, what are some interesting things you are seeing in the data so far and in the, the, the garbage? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is that I'm, you know, any project I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm conducting it on this backdrop of all this other research that I've done, right? And so my work started out in the Great Lakes, having surveyed all five of them for plastic pollution and, you know, and then moving upstream from that. And a big kind of take-home message at this point for me is just kind of the the, um, the dichotomy between the two, you know, the vast majority of what we pull out of the Great Lakes 
on the order of, you know, 75 to 90% of what we pull out of the Great Lakes is incredibly small pieces of plastic, commonly referred to as microplastics. So these are, are pieces of plastic that are smaller than five millimeters. So they're they're smaller than like your thumbnail, you know, these really, and they can go down to like the size of a, a grain of salt or a grain of sand. I mean, they're really small pieces of plastic that are really difficult to identify as to what did they ultimately come from. And then here we're looking in these litter booms and what we're finding are much bigger pieces of plastic that are identifiable mixed in with that are these fragments. So we, we see them both and it just tells me, I mean, right now, kind of what I, a lot of my thinking is about just that a lot of the breakdown of plastics, and I should really say the breakage of plastic because they don't break down, right? It's not, it's not like a, a paper bag that gets returned to the soil and within, you know, six weeks is, is completely unidentifiable. It's so much a part of the soil now. A, a plastic item just breaks into these smaller and smaller pieces, but it's still as plastic. It's not been returned to the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, to its basic elements. It's not food for the planet. It continues to just be plastic. And so a lot of that breakage is happening on land more so than I think I fully appreciated when I first got into this field, surprised at how few plastic bags we find. And I think, again, that, that a lot of that is because they're getting caught in trees and bushes and power lines. And so you don't necessarily see them in the rivers themselves. How hard would it be to take a sampling of the garbage and date the plastics, you know, uh, determine their age? I would think the microplastics would be months and years old. And the big bottles, you know, had just been thrown away recently. That's why the, the boom got them. Right. But what's your exactly. estimate on the age range and could it be calculated or is that incredibly difficult? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that that's that's one of the questions that researchers out there are kind of looking at is how we can date plastic. Um, and I, I don't know that we have a full answer for that. But one of the things that we do look for and um, items we're retrieving is plastic that has dates already on it. For example, if you're finding a bottle, it has some kind of identifiable you know, it, a lot number is typically what they're called. And you can find from that lot number, you know, more information about when it was produced. But I think what we, one of the things we need to do is get more information from actual environmental samples so that we can start finding a, a way to kind of date those materials. But that that's still kind of a holy grail, to be honest. Yeah. Has anyone been able to identify the causes of the breakage? I would guess it would be sun and wave action yep. that would break these bottles apart. But um, does anyone know how long it takes them to break to a certain size on average? And could you calculate, again, the age of any particular piece of plastic based on like morphology and size and all that stuff? That's a great use of the word morphology, by the way. I just want to comment on that. <laughs> so, yes, it's plastic largely breaks down through a, a physical breakage process. So rather than chemical, so it's the sun baking it, making it brittle, and then mechanical abrasion, breaking it into smaller and smaller pieces. A little chemistry is happening along the way, but it's mostly a physical weathering process. It gets difficult with plastic because it's not just one material, right? There's literally thousands of different plastics out there. And so the way that a polyethylene polymer might break is going to be different than say polyvinyl chloride, you know, because of the kind of the different nature in their 
their, their chemistry. Um, and so that makes it difficult to say, oh, well, I found a piece that is this size. So therefore it must be this old, right? That you're not, it's not going to be as simple as that. It's going to probably require more instrumentation and kind of understanding the state, the kind of length of the polymer chains and the state of oxidation and those kind of microscopic factors that might help us kind of understand and date items as opposed to just knowing the size itself. But do you know if anyone's conducting like longitude to see how, you know, plastic goes to die? Yeah, there's definitely studies happening, understanding that kind of breakdown of, of plastic pollution for sure. I just saw a study come across my desk not so long ago. So, so those studies are definitely out there and, you know, it's part of the, the field. Okay. I know this is probably a weird question, but is anyone sampling the bacteria that live amongst the garbage, you know, like uh, in the boom, is anyone sampling the bacteria that live in and around the plastics or in the garbage patches in the ocean or in any place? You know, what is no, it? Not a, yeah, that's not a bad question at all. It's not part of the study that we have going in this case, but we have done that kind of work in the past, working with biologists. I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating. I mean, being a chemist, it wasn't something that I had ever thought of, but we did a study where we were looking actually in the Chicago River and we compared the bacterial colonies within the water to what we find on found on, say, um, tree branches. So kind of naturally occurring organic materials and then comparing it to what we found on the plastic themselves. And and it is different. You know, and the bacterial colonies that are on the plastic are ones that, you know, could possibly use it as a food source. Um, and it's also kind of tied with the, the pathway that the plastic took to get into the water. And so they tend to, for example, some plastics, like say somebody takes their contact lenses, their disposable contact lenses out, and they throw them down the toilet. And then that flushes, it goes to a wastewater treatment plant. But wastewater treatment plants were not designed to remove plastic. They were designed to remove pee and poo. And, and they do that very well. They are actually kind of surprisingly effective at removing plastic. Somewhere between 75 and 95% of plastics will be removed into what's called the sewage sludge at a wastewater treatment plant. But you still have literally millions, on average, 4 million pieces of plastic being released from every single wastewater treatment plant in the across the nation. This is a study that we did looking at 19 different facilities here in the United States. And on average, each facility was releasing 4 million particles of plastic out into waterways. And there are 15,000 wastewater treatment plants across the United States. So even as, as effective as they are, there's still a lot of plastic making its way through a wastewater treatment plant. And I mentioned that because, you know, the wastewater treatment plant process, we use microbes in order to decompose the pee and the poo. And so you can actually find then these kind of remnants coming from, from that process, these biological colonies still on the, the plastic. So it becomes a, a way, a vector, as we say, to move these bacteria from one location to another. And in fact, they can be colonized by invasive species and, and move invasive species across the planet as well. So it's, it's quite the, the kind of biological world of microplastics is quite fascinating. It's not my field of study, but I love re, uh, you know the work of my, my colleagues on that. Yeah, very interesting. Have you been out to the, uh, the booms themselves to look at the physical arrangement of the trash? You get any clues that way? Um, yeah, so I go out to the booms twice a week. 
But I, I guess I'm not sure exactly what you mean, the arrangement of the trash. Well, like, what does the boom look like? And what does the trash look like that's been corralled by the, the boom? Does it look any, is there anything interesting about it? Or is it just crap floating on the water? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically, you know, the, so the boom stretches across the creek. The stuff gets, and it's at an angle so that as the water is moving, anything that's floating on the top get pushed, gets pushed down, basically kind of down the litter boom into this cement um, area like a almost like a, a small pool or something and then it's it's just all kind of corralled in this this little cement container and yeah so it's just kind of floating there it's mixed with a lot of debris so you know a big part of what we are doing is picking out all the leaves and the twigs you know sometimes some dead animals <laughs> fish rodents you know, and then just bringing the the plastic itself back to the lab or the anthropogenic items back to the lab. We do occasionally find, uh, for example, beer cans or something like that too. So it's not all plastic, but the vast majority of it is plastic. I just imagine it's in some fenced off area with no swimming signs. And I just wonder what the, again, the garbage looks like in this little concentrated area, you know, is it completely covering the surface? Are there local things you've noticed there? Like, no animals around it, a lot of animals. Um, this is a shoreline or the concrete sides look strange. You know, there is there algae or barnacles or is there anything in the <laughs> site that tells you more more clues as to what's going on? It's kind of, I mean, I, I think probably a lot of us have had experiences where we're at a marina and you look down and, you know, there's just trash kind of collected in a certain area. It's basically like that. It's, yeah, I mean, the, the trash is all floating at the top, well, largely, it's the whole cement container containment unit is, I mean, it's cement sides. There's, you know, so there's one of our location is on the property of our local wastewater treatment plant. And the other one is in the city itself, surrounded by metal fencing. You wouldn't really know what it was if you had never been there. You just see this metal fence and lots of brush around. Um, not a lot of critters, um, but there are, you know, critters that live in the, the storm drains. So. Hence, we find some some dead critters in our in our samples, unfortunately, yeah. from time to time. So, what what are some of the big questions that you're researching right now? What are you trying to figure out? So, right now, the my interest is kind of understanding more about flow of how things are moving from the land into out into the lake. What do we see different within, say, the the street sweeper trash versus the storm drains versus the litter booms? For example, like I, I think I've already mentioned that within the litter booms, I've been kind of surprised at how few plastic bags like grocery bags we find because I see them stuck in trees all over the place. I'm staring at one right now. And so I'm curious if we might see more of those plastic bags, say, in the storm drains or in the street sweeper data um, than what we've been finding in the litter booms themselves. Um, which so it might kind of give us a, a, a better appreciation for, you know, kind of what are the best mitigation measures, you know, so understanding, you know, maybe it's makes more sense to do more, you know, cleaning with street sweepers than it does building these cement containment units and these litter booms um, for a particular area. So kind of trying to understand that and then looking at, you know, different locations to see if there's a consistency or a difference. 
And another kind of interesting difference between our locations that we're currently serving is, is kind of different socioeconomic conditions within the two locations and kind of understanding the how that might influence what we find. Different numbers of houses versus, you know, kind of commercial real estate, you know, convenience stores and, you know, coffee shops and kinds of things. And how do those maybe affect what we're finding in our different locations? So those are kind of questions with this particular study, but it's all against this backdrop of these other studies I've done, looking within the lakes themselves, um, looking you know, rivers uh, for microplastics, studies we've done on, on consumer products, you know, finding microplastics within, for example, beer and tap water and bottled water, and just kind of trying to understand that kind of the bigger issue as a whole, how this stuff is making its way from, you know, a grocery store <laughs> to the water and then back into us as people. And what is the, the potential impact? If we could take a moment or two, what you learned about microplastics and you know them appearing in beer and then drinking water, et cetera. What does that look like? What levels, what what size, et cetera? So I mean, I guess the the big takeaway is that it doesn't matter where we look, we always find plastic, right? So we haven't done studies on Mount Everest and the Marianas Trench, but other people have and and you find it, right? It's in it's in our air. I think, you know, our studies on consumer products were pretty early in kind of that appreciation of just how ubiquitous these particles are. And um, we did the, the tap water beer sea salt study. That was our first kind of consumer study. And interestingly, in that study, we found less within beer than we did within the tap water, which I always make a joke when I'm giving presentations like, so apparently beer is better for you. <laughs> But I think that has to, <laughs> that's right. I think that has to do with the kind of microfiltration that, um, you know, beer undergoes, which is not that that tap water doesn't, but beer undergoes, you know, an additional kind of layers of that once the tap water is received by the facility. So that was kind of interesting. I think I really expected with the tap water that people, and then the levels that we're seeing are, are not, you know, astronomical. So within beer, yeah, within tap water, it was five and a half pieces of plastic per liter of tap water was the average. And in beer, it was four pieces of plastic particles. So these are, again, these are microplastics and most of them are fibers in that study. Most of them are fibers and so 98% of them are fibers. And what that tells me is that the, the contamination is probably mostly coming from the air that basically as soon as the, the liquid is in contact with air, you have particles from the air that are ending up in those consumer products, but we're definitely consuming them. What's interesting is the tap water study. I really kind of thought that that would kind of, you know, kind of embolden people and make them, you know, kind of an outcry and demand change. And instead, you know, I did hear some people comment on, on some of the stories, oh, well, I'm just going to start drinking more bottled water. And that really surprised me. So that's what kind of led then to our bottled water study, because it just seemed so counterintuitive. Like if you're going to wrap something in plastic, it's probably going to have plastic in it, you know, um, but they, you know, bottled water companies have done such an effective job of kind of marketing these products as though they are better and cleaner than tap water when the reality is there's 
very little to no regulation of bottled water and your tap water is highly regulated. And that is kind of what was bore out in the bottled water study. So on average, a liter of bottled water is going to have over 325 pieces of plastic in it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. is, is that across all brands? Is yeah, so we looked at, it was a global bottled water assessment. We looked at 11 different brands that were purchased in 19 different countries. So some brands we obtained from multiple locations. So for example, Nestle Pure Life is bottled, you know, all over the globe. And so we obtained Nestle Pure Life, what is it, bottles that came from, from three different locations across the globe. Other bottled water brands, um, and these were the top selling bottled brands globally or within a particular region. And so like Gerald Steiner is a, a big bottled water company in Germany, and it's bottled only at a particular location. And so that's the only location that we could get that. So it was 11 different brands. And so, yeah, I'm averaging across all of those brands obtained from across the globe. Um, Nestle, I always call them out because they were the worst that we found. We had a, a single bottle of Nestle Pure Life that had over 10,000 pieces of plastic in it. And in comparison to the tap water study, it, what was really interesting too, is that in bottled water, most of those particles, 65% of the particles were fragments, not fibers. And so what that was really kind of indicating is that it's a different source. And, and ultimately what we concluded is that the vast majority of that plastic is making its way into the water that you're then going to drink through the act of packaging the water that it wasn't something that was inherent in the water, right? That's kind of what we saw in the tap water studies as the fibers are probably kind of just in the water. As soon as the water comes in contact with air, it's there, but within, but when you're finding all of well, these the, fragments, it's- Are the, it's fibers, uh, the fibers adsorbed from the air into the water, like entrained in the liquid? Yeah, it's not an absorption process. It's a different, I mean, just, I mean, this is me being a, a scientist. I'm so sorry, but yeah, they basically fall out from the air into the water. You know, that's just, it's an exchange process that just kind of happens. So yeah, as soon as air common water and air come in contact, there's, there's things that are going to be exchanged between them. You know, some of those are gases, you know, oxygen gets. That's where the fiber comes from. The fibers, sorry. Fibers, the, the, yeah. the broken pieces. Uh, where do they come from? You think? The fragments are coming from the bottle itself or the cap, 4% of our fragments that we analyzed had industrial lubricants on them. So I think it's the mechanics of how that bottling process works, right? It's machines, you know, that heat up the plastic and puff it out and machines that are screwing on the caps and all of that you know, is, and when you think about that cap being screwed on, you have plastic rubbing on plastic, you know, it's a mechanized process. And so the idea that somehow that is going to be a clean process, you know, free from impurities, I think is misunderstanding that people have. Yeah, that's crazy. What's the best way people can find out more about your work? Where can they go? My website, Sherry Mason. Dot com. You can find my list of articles. I have lots of videos of presentations I've given. And I have a, a section of the website that's kind of devoted to suggesting um, ways that people can be the change. Um, my, my favorite motto in life is, is that from uh, Gandhi, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. And so 
easy kind of, you know, things that people can do to reduce their use of plastic in their own life. Well, very good. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's interesting. I know there's lots more questions, but, uh, you know, again, thank you for coming. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.